Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Carla Nappi with the New Book Network, and you're listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. I just had the great pleasure of chatting for about an hour with Lee Ambrosi, who just edited and translated the book I Weigh Weigh's blog, Writings, Interviews, and Digital Rants, 2006 through 2009, and that just came out in 2011 with the MIT Press. Now, Li is a scholar of Chinese art history, and she's based in Beijing. And we talked for about an hour about um, really all levels of creating and producing a document like this, which is an English language translation um, and print published version of what had been a Chinese language online blog, and in some cases, a series of Twitter posts or tweets. Um, We really had the chance to take this idea that the task of the translator and the work of a translator is usually invisible and make visible um, some of the practices that I found really fascinating to, to learn about that went into producing a book that um, I believe will go on to have a great importance as a cultural document. So I hope you enjoy, sit back and relax, and uh, here it goes. Hi, Lee. Hi. Um, thanks, Hi, <laughs> thanks so much um, for taking the time to talk with us today, especially given the time difference. Uh, so Not a problem. Great. Um, so first, uh, could you say a little bit about yourself for listeners, um, just your background and how you became interested in working on contemporary Chinese art? Yes. Um, I've been in Beijing now since 2004. Um, and I had come to Beijing. It was not my first time here. Mm-hmm. I was coming to do a language a language program at Beijing University. Mm-hmm. And I had a fellowship from the the government. The Chinese government is actually very um they're very generous to foreign students mm-hmm. who want to study Chinese, especially in those days when many people were not interested in studying here. Right. So I was at Beida, we call it Beida. Mm-hmm. And I had just recently left a fellowship in rural China in Shanxi province in the countryside a couple years before that. And um, when I left Shanxi in 2001, it was after a year long of teaching at an agricultural college through a program we have at Oberlin University, which I graduated from which sends uh, scholars back and forth, you know, uh, Asia, Asia, Oberlin exchange. And when I left, I honestly, I didn't think that I would be back in China. I had made a promise to myself not to come back to go somewhere else mm-hmm. and um, broaden horizons. But I just found myself really missing the language when I was back in the States and sort of craving to speak it and find find friends to speak with. And I was going online and looking at all kinds of television, Chinese television, and just happened to end up reading a lot about Chinese contemporary art at that time because there was a couple of pretty influential websites up in the early 
two thousands. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of my first my first contact with art from China, but I'd never thought about it in any sort of career minded way. And when I came back in 2004, it was to study language, but it was also with the intention of being a translator. And I sort of knew from my time in Shanxi that if I wanted to do any sort of significant translation, that I would have to make a commitment to stay in China for at least a couple of years and absorb a lot of cultural references, um, you know, become very fluent and I guess what we would call cultural fluency. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was my first, my first sort of intention coming back. And it was shortly after that I started working at local magazine here and writing about art and, um, it was really, it was really sort of unintentional that I got involved in the, you know, the so-called contemporary art world. Mm-hmm. But I, I also had made myself a promise that I wouldn't do any English teaching, number one. And uh-huh. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't teach English and I wouldn't do any commercial activities. I wouldn't involve myself in any commercial activities. So... Mm-hmm. And you're at Art Forum now, is that right? Yes, I I work for Art Forum. We have a small office here that does a lot of translation from the English into the Chinese, and we commission our own pieces of criticism here and do local interviews and local coverage. That's great. Um, now, coming from this into the book that you um, just published, and congratulations on that. This is Ai Weiwei's blog, Writings, Interviews, and Digital Rants, 2006 to 2009, and that's just come out with MIT Press. Now, Mm -hmm. for a lot of people who will be listening to this, and for a lot of people in North America, um, Ai Weiwei has obviously been a figure of great interest for a very long time, but especially recently. So because of that, I think this book and your project, which are uh, really wonderfully, wonderfully translated and wonderfully written, and I've been... Oh, thank you. Oh, I mean, it's been such a pleasure to read through, and I've been really looking forward to talking with you about this. Um, But because of, I think, recent um, events uh, globally, this is going to be of interest potentially to a lot of people. Um, So would you mind talking a little bit about Ai Weiwei's blog um, and also how you came to be involved in this project as the editor and translator of the blog posts? Well, the the blog had been going on since 2006, as you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading it when it first started and referencing it from early on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until 2008 that somebody had contacted me from his office about translating the texts. And I think it had started with the intention or with the knowledge that these texts would, would someday be important and be useful. And it also falls into line with his practice of documenting just about everything he does. And, and, reaching out to his international audience. And I think that the nature of the, of his language and the nature of his writing and also the very localized um, way that he 
blog, or shall I say for the audience who, who, whom he was blogging for, mm-hmm. it was inaccessible to a large portion of Western readers. I would say almost definitely like the, the majority of Western readers. I mean, right. of course, anyone can look at it and pull from it interesting tidbits and or get the gist of it or look at the pictures and... And that's fine, but there was a level of uh, exploration and a level of depth that I think very few people had been in contact with who, who weren't capable of reading Chinese. Mm-hmm. So that's where the that's where the um, significance I think of the translation comes in as well. Absolutely. And for listeners who may um, not have had a chance to take a look at the book yet, or um, for whom this is, you know, Ai Weiwei's blog is new territory, can you say just a little bit about the nature of his language and of his blog? Because that'll then get us into issues of you know, that are, I think, really interesting, um, which you know are intru- issues of how you translate um, and how mm-hmm. you went about, you know, deciding how to put this book together. So, um, right. So a little bit about the blog itself and the kind of language and the kind of practices he used in that? Well, the blog itself was not all about art. I think when people hear Ai Weiwei, his name, or previously before before the events of today, or sort of many people have come to know him later after his arrest and after all the political activism, and those people may expect the blog to be political. But in those days, let's say 2006, 2007, he was more of a a public intellectual figure than an artist. I would say, especially on like the online, uh, the digital media, you know, he was, he was writing occasionally about architecture, his practice, or he would uh, write pieces for his friends who were artists. So, you know, critique. Um, but a lot of it was, a lot of it was his personal reactions to news or to events that were happening within China at the time that were important and discussed by the the very active blogging community here mm-hmm. in Chinese. So he was participating in that in that community. He wasn't per se, you know, posting pictures of his artworks or what have you. I mean, he posted a lot of pictures about his life, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't. A place where he pushed his, where he pushed his art practice, or where he, you know, marked his territory as a as an artist or a contemporary artist. He was very much reacting to social issues and with a critical edge. I, I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about the book, right? Because reading through it, it's not just a book about art history. It's not even clearly at all a book about art history, right? And it's not just about Ai Weiwei. It's about, um, at least as um, as I read it, reading through it in the past week or so, uh, it's really about also internet culture in today's China, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, I'm, I'm sorry, go on. Well, it's, it's about internet culture in China. It reflects the you know the depth of discussion that's going on on what were then less regulated platforms, mm-hmm. and it also reflects the uh, civil society in China, mm-hmm. and it also reflects a very um, cultivated mind, you know, reacting critically to 
what's happening here and being daring and outspoken, outspoken enough to make such comments in a public forum. And I know it's not about his art per se, but I think what makes him an outstanding artist is the way he blends politics and arts and art together. So although the content itself might not be about art or his thoughts on creation or, you know, very, very small part of it is about that. It does. I mean, the book itself does reflect his practice as an artist. I would go so far even to say that the book itself is a document recording his artwork, his extended work over four years. Mm-hmm. That's great. I, I, I completely agree with you on that. Um, just from reading it and it also even, I'm sure for non-specialists, but even for those of us who work on Chinese history or Chinese literature, um, who don't have the chance or don't have the time to really follow what's happening in Chinese language blog culture or mm. Chinese language uh, news coverage, it also gives a completely different perspective um, into current events in 21st century China. Hello, cats. Yeah. Oh, sorry about <laughs> no, that. No, no. It's a, it's a group conversation. My cat's over here trying to not uh, meow and attack me too much in the next hour or so. Um, but it does, it does give a, a totally different perspective into current events in 21st century China now um, than what most people who you know follow events at, on, say, the New York Times get by really filtering the news through Ai Weiwei's eyes, right? I mean, a mm-hmm. lot of this is... Um, the experience of reading about um, what have had been current events in 21st century China in Chinese press from a completely different perspective than I think we often get um, on this side of the, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And that's one of the reasons why I was so excited about this project for me personally as a translator, because... I studied sociology and East Asian studies. So my interest in in China cut in initially at that level, at a sociological level. And his reactions here are to society at large. Mm-hmm. And he is an artist, so I'm familiar with his context and his community. And that makes it it makes us a very good fit for each other. And I think we both felt that way on our initial meeting and discussion. I think we both got along really well and decided it was a good fit almost immediately. So that's good. And, and another, yeah, another thing about the book that makes me so excited is that it's a book for anyone interested in contemporary China because it's, it's Chinese society by Chinese people. I think one of the most frustrating things about being an expat or being involved in so-called, you know, China studies or East Asian studies is that there's so few Chinese voices mm-hmm. commenting on their own society and on, on the way things happen here. And I think that's a major deficit in terms of how North Americans approach China as, you know, as a object of study. So for, for this man to come forth as an artist or what have you, or as a commentator, or have you as an intellectual, what have you as, as a, as a man who had lived in, China, in the United States for many years and had returned, his perspective was really invaluable in that sense. So it meant a lot to me to be working on a book that would 
bring a native intellectual's voice into the English language and for it to be a voice that people from the West would find resonance in instead of one that was sort of colored in the, the usual sort of Sino-American or what have you relations, which I don't like the sort of Cold War residuals. And, you know, so that I felt that this book addresses a, a, a huge gap in how we see China. I agree. And I think that really came through. So um, congratulations on that. <clears throat> and while we're, so actually, this is a great time for us to get into the book itself. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more um, if you could talk about what the editing process was like, because this is, you talked, you briefly mentioned his practice and his documentary practice as part of his art um, a little, uh, a few minutes ago, a little while ago, and he was blogging mm-hmm. every day at one point, right? Yeah, yeah, he was posting almost every single day. So there's this mass of information. So could you talk um, about what the editing process was like, first of all, before we then sort of move to translation? How did you decide what to include, what not to include, and how to arrange the the, uh, posts? Mm -hmm. Well, inclusion was sort of, it was easier for, for the earlier text because, as you know from reading through it, his style, his approach change. They evolve over time. So in 2006, he's writing a lot of essay format pieces and he's the complete text. They can be consumed, you know, from beginning to end and you don't need too much contextual information. But by the time we get to the end of the blog or the middle of the end, he's really absorbed in his community of bloggers. So the same topic will be approached over many different posts or do, do you see what I'm saying? Instead yeah. of one, one complete like three legged essay, we have a series of five essays all on the same, on the same topic. Mm-hmm. Or he would, he would be interested in a certain topic. Let's say for example, the Yang Jia case, right. which, which was only referenced in, I think one or two texts in the blog book, but which in actuality on the blog itself there was like 25, 30 posts about it. Wow. And each, each one. So let's say each post would react to a new news item that would come out that day. Mm-hmm. Or as, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm so, <laughs> you're getting me so excited with this. So uh, I'm sorry. No, please go on. Well, or as, as you know, as his case evolved, as Yan Jia's case evolved, um, Ai Weiwei would re- respond to each each step in the case. So uh, maybe his lawyer was allowed to see him or his mother was taken into custody into the mental institution. And each, each little step he would have reactions and thoughts on that process. And I don't want to say that's what got him his fan base, but it's what made him a popular blogger because he respect, he reacted in such depth to the news that it was very interesting. So, for example, um, taking this particular case, which um, I'd, could you say a tiny little bit about this for listeners who may not be yeah. familiar with it? Well, the Yang Jia case happened in 2008. And 2008 for China, I think everyone knows, was its debutante ball. It's when um, she came out on the world stage. She was hosting the Olympics. I don't know why I'm referring to it as a her. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but it was a incredible year for China. The earthquake happened um, 
later on. There was the melamine with the milk. There was riots in various places. And Aweiwei addressed all of these different events in his in his writings. So that's part of the reason why we decided to do a chronological approach is because there was just no way, there was no other way in which to to thread these things together. And by doing it in such a way, it, was, it would make it a useful uh, tool for people trying to understand contemporary China as well. Right. So that so the young Jia case was in particular it was a case of a young man who a little disgruntled, um, iconoclastic. He was from Beijing, and he had traveled to Shanghai. I think just to sort of hang out and look around. And while he was in Shanghai, he had rented a bike and was traveling around when the police accused him of stealing the bike. And being a Beijing, a Beijinger, which naturally has a little bit of antagonistic, you know, attitude towards Shanghai people. The two countries, I mean, the two cities have their um, their rivalry going on. So that was a part of it. But the the local Shanghai police had had beaten him pretty drastically, <clears throat> and that was a response to his sort of like sarcastic, cocky attitude, being a Beijinger. And he was beaten badly enough that I've, I've read it in the news that he was um, like incapable of reproducing. It was like to that to that extent he was harmed physically. And he had tried legal channels to he had tried to be compensated for his loss and to no avail because this is this is a classic case of individual versus state. Mm-hmm. You can imagine so. All these different roads, uh, he traveled and Doris shut in his face. So he finally lost his cool. And I guess we would say in, um, I guess we would say he went postal on them, mm-hmm. stormed into the police office, um, ended up killing six people. And he had all these weapons on him. So it was very dramatic and, and bloody and violent and very tragic case of just like youth driven to the edge and then over the edge. And he was reacted to by the online community, not just Ai Weiwei, but as a hero figure. Right. Right. For, for what he had done. So, so that became a, a central theme in, in the blog as well. Right. And it, it recurs even in the later posts from 2009, right? I mean, this, occasionally mm-hmm. you'll see little mentions of Yang Jia in the um, in Ai Weiwei's mm-hmm. post about other things. But so taking this as a case study then, so you are um, an editor and translator and you are sitting down and let's say you have 26 or 27, for example, posts um, on this particular topic. How do you mm-hmm. then sit down and go through and decide which to, um, to include in the book? In a couple cases... I took pieces and put them together mm-hmm. because there was just too much information mm-hmm. and it would just work better to amalgamate. So I did that in a few instances and just tried to get the most general idea to Western readers who in most probably have not heard of these stories because they were not of large interest in the English media. So my point was to give a general introduction to the 
stories as well as encapsulate his, or I would always take on them. So that's, that's how I, I would decide which one. And in some, in some instances, in some instances, the, like the anger from I was just so great that I had to leave it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did you decide to, to leave out um, the particularly angry moments, if you don't mind my asking? Was that your own editorial voice speaking? Did you actually um, talk with the author and sort of negotiate at you know, these sorts of issues at that level or how did, how did those decisions play out? We did discuss things at very, very many levels. I think that, I think that he was very, um, very trusting of me. Mm-hmm. And I think he's also very trusting of all of his, uh, workers, but he gave me a great deal of leverage and which pieces to choose. And I really appreciated that trust from him. So I think what we discussed more in depth was how to translate um, certain expressions or certain sayings, because in, in some part, in some parts of the text, it was unclear what he was trying to say. And it might've even been unclear in the Chinese version. So when we would come across sentences that were not so, um, I mean, I guess in Chinese you would say like, um, you know, mm-hmm. but we would take those and rearrange them or he would explain what he was thinking to me. And then I would bring it into English in a way that would be understandable or try and preserve his, his original irony or his original, like maybe he's using a, some sort of like official way of saying something. So we would, we would try and work around those issues so that the text themselves reflected his original intention. But in terms of which text to choose, that was pretty much my own decision from pouring over the texts. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the reason why I chose some of the more um, like vitriolic texts, why, why I left those out was because I didn't want people unfamiliar with him to be put off by his extreme language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I think, and I I think, um, you know, from in my completely biased one reader's point of view opinion, I think it works really well. Um, the decisions, um, I think were good ones in my totally (laughs) humble, unbiased. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that actually brings us to a really important part of this project, right? Um, so I'd love to turn, um, for, uh, a little while to the process of translation itself. Um, mm-hmm. So do you mind talking uh, for as long as you want to um, about um, some of the particular challenges of translating a work like this? Because you're you're translating on at least two levels, which you just um, alluded to, I think, in discussing your talks with Ai Weiwei. Um, it's not just Chinese to English, but you're also translating kind of a, a web language and format into a print um, document. So, um, can you yeah, talk about that yeah. process? Well, um, do you mean my working process? Like, how do I work? Sure. Were there any, um, sure, both your working process and also were there any aspects of that that were particularly challenging? Yeah, yes. I mean, first of all, his language is very challenging mm-hmm. from the onset. Um, 
there were some passages that, like I said, they were just not clear in the original text. And of course it's blogging. So, I mean, no one has the luxury of an editor. I remember, I remember in the beginning, the first couple texts that I did, just showing it to a couple of friends, asking for help, you know, my very literate friends. <laughs> and they looked, looked at it and just shrugged their shoulders and said, I just, I don't know. I have nothing to say. And I think that that reaction is what a lot of Chinese readers will tell you. His writing is a lot like his person. You either love him or you hate him. He evokes these very extreme reactions in people. So some people love the fact that he mixes very colloquial, uh, brutish terms with elegant you know, elegant structures. Some people really like that. I guess it's a new kind of vernacular, maybe some sort of blogging vernacular. I don't know, but, but some people think it's just doing a disservice to the Chinese language. It really depends on, depends on your background. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah. Can you um, recall particular posts that were especially challenging for you or particular um, parts of his language that were, excuse me, particularly challenging? I think, I think the most challenging part for me of his language was some of the sections where he, he alludes to ways of talking or uh, phrases that were used in the cultural revolution when he was growing up mm-hmm. or just ways of, you know, expressions that were very popular then, but which are not in use anymore. So Sometimes, sometimes I don't pick those up because you just literally do, you do not see them in the language anymore. So that was challenging. And after, after a while I got used to the fact that he used them and I, I saw, I was honed. I knew when he might throw one in. So I would, I would ask him about it. Are there um, particular examples that you can think of of those? Like- I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to find one for you. <laughs> okay. There was a lot of them. There was like there's a surprising lot of them. Some of them just cannot be they cannot be translated. And sometimes when you hit things like that, it's really that sense of sadness that you can't bring that into the you cannot bring it into the language mm-hmm. into your mother language, your mother tongue. There was there was a piece about film flickering lights I'm looking for it right now. There are also, while you're looking for that, I mean, there were also some really contemporary phrases, right? Like I remember um, when I first picked this book up and read the dedication to grass mud horse, Mm -hmm. you know, being relatively um, internet illiterate, I remember thinking, what on earth is that? And then it's Mm -hmm. at the end of the book, right? There's a footnote that explains um, what grass mud horse is. So could you you very briefly maybe... um, uh, explain that for readers. So that they- yes, that's that's a brilliant a brilliant concept. This is my this is one of my favorite things about contemporary China, <laughs> just ever is the grass mud horse. Um, the grass mud horse lit- is a literal translation from the Chinese, which is tao ni ma, which 
is a pun on the words fuck your mother and around this pun an entire mythology has developed so there's the grass mud horse that lives in this land and the the land sounds like another curse word mm-hmm. and then the gra- the grass mud horse lives on a kind of a kind of grass called wotao and wotao is a pun on fuck me <laughs> so this is what the horse li- lives on but unfortunately there's a river crab and the river crab is a pun on the word for um Harmon to be harmonized, which which we know in the in the ethos of the Chinese blogosphere, to be harmonized to mean it means you're censored, you've been censored, or you've been taken down, you've been deleted. Mm-hmm. So, all of these little grass mud horses, of which we all imagine ourselves, <laughs> are in danger because all the harmonization is eating what they live on, which is. Which is, I guess, just fuck me, you know. So it's it's this really hilarious uh, way of looking. It's this really funny worldview, and it's just caught on virally. It was made into a video a million times. People were making T-shirts, and they were selling dolls. And of course, I was a huge fan of it. Talked about it all the time on his blog, and it's just it's just is a it's a great. It's like something that could never be anywhere else. Uh-huh. It's, it reflects that sort of uh, self-destructive humor in the face of all kinds of obstacles. And when we were, when I was writing the front matter of the book and going through the book, um, there was a section where it asked for the dedication, and I was thinking, I was thinking, God, who who would he dedicate this book to? I mean, who? I don't. I, I wouldn't imagine he would want to dedicate to his mother or something like that. And I just thought, this is for the grass mud horse. And I wrote it in there. And I showed it. I showed him a printout of it. And he came to it. And he was like, "Did you do this?" And I was like, "Yes." And he was like, "That's great." And then we decided that would be it. I think it's perfect. And um, the story behind it is great uh, to hear, too. Um, Thank you. Um, It's funny. So did you, in translating a blog like this, right? I mean, there's a bunch of times throughout the blog where he invokes other um, very kind of popular bloggers um, that were also um, coming into prominence at the time, like Han Han, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, and just, you know, Googling around a little bit, um, and you see the way some of the other prominent Chinese blogs have been treated in translation. For example, you know, Han Han's blog, there's actually a website that translates some of those books mm. and archives them online. How did yeah. you, how did you decide, um, that this format, sort of a print publication format, um, was the way to go rather than an online format? Or but maybe better put, um, what do you think the relative um, you know, differences are, benefits or drawbacks of doing um, a translation of a Chinese blog in, a, in this kind of print publication versus an online version? Well, I guess, um, I guess the differences there are, are number one, just one of quality and time. I think when something is in print, we tend to give it a different kind of attention. It has a certain kind of weight. And 
just frankly, it passes through many more hands before it reaches your eyes. And I think that was important to him to see his writing come out in a book form and as something that readers from the West could understand him at that level. It's something he really cared very deeply about. So that's one reason. Um, God, another... I mean, there are some of his texts online in translation. I think another reason is that they were just... Frankly, they were just too difficult. I mean, Han's writing is... It's challenging in a different way. But it's not quite as complex as Weiwei's. And maybe I say that because some of his writing is just so... It's just so hard to piece together. There's so many references to it, and some of them are so almost antiquated on the internet um, because he is like he's one of the older. I guess he's one of the older bloggers. A lot. I mean, Han's young. He's he must be 27 or 28. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think when the when his blog ended, there was actually many mirror sites that had his blog in Chinese. Mm-hmm. And they were not reachable within China. So mm-hmm. that made it challenging. There was a few a few different blogging platforms that had his texts on them. But I think because we had worked so hard on the English, he, of course, is going to put them out in a book form before they go online. And also uh, one difference between Han's blog and Aiwei's blog is that um, Aiwei's blog is... is over it stopped it's censored permanently and that gives it a different feeling from Han Han's blog which is still continuing and still going on I have to say that during when three quarters of the book were done and we were still plowing through 2009 it got a little bit daunting because we we didn't know how we would organize the book and I had toyed with all different kinds of you know politics art architecture all these different um, categories that we might have used because at the time the blog was still going on. I mean, when, when would it end? Nobody really knew. So when, mm-hmm. and I told, I told him this as well, but when, the, when it was censored, when it was over, I felt a great sense of relief because the book had closure then. Mm-hmm. It was very clear what to do with it after that moment. If we, um, why don't we then turn um, for a a little while to the book itself? As um, for readers who haven't had a chance to take a look at this, um, it's organized chronologically. So there are sections for the 2006 text through um, the 2009 um, text, which includes some tweets, right? And I'd love to talk about that a little bit before we're done. Mm. Um, But um, for readers who haven't had a chance to look, the topics of the 2006 text range from rumination on space and cities and the relationship between art and the public, history, photography, um, the nature of humanity to museum displays, including, I think, one of my favorite um, translated posts. Do you know what I'm going to say? The woman? There's this description of an entire woman's body preserved in formaldehyde, but these are um, these great details that emerge. She's wearing black stockings and gloves, and in front of the display, there are two little 
full bottles, um, one including a broken hymen and one an unbroken hymen. I mean, there's just these little magical details in this book um, yeah. that are amazing. There's, he has a note ostensibly written on an airplane's airsick bag and lots of um, reflections on contemporaries of, of him, right? Artists and musicians. Mm-hmm. Are there any posts from this section um, that especially stand out for you or that were especially challenging to work on as a translator? I would say that that post you just mentioned was is very good. That's one of that's one of my favorites. And there's another piece where he talks about he talks about the blind path on the roads. Oh right. Which is something that I still think about today. And that's actually a post right before it because he was he was thinking a lot about cities at the time. So in the post titled Their City. Mm-hmm. He talks about uh, a path for the vision impaired on the road, and he's in a he's in a city where the power goes out in the middle of the night for some unexplained reason, and the path for the vision impaired, which is a, a slightly it's a kind of concrete, small concrete blocks that have little tiny ridges going in one direction, and so you, when you lay the concrete tiles into the cement when you're laying the cement all the ridges are sort of in one straight line so that if you were blind you could ostensibly walk along the path feel where you were going Mm -hmm. and then when you come to a crosswalk or something the path changes to these little nubs like little round things little nublins and then you would know to stop from the feeling you got underneath your feet but in this town which is out in the provinces i won't say where it is to save the face of the town but in this town on the the concrete they take the blind walkway and they lay it in a decorative manner they don't lay it in any functional manner so the the path itself actually runs into telephone poles and into fences so anyone who was actually blind using the path would would be (laughs) would be in trouble so that's something i think about all the time as well in beijing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's great. Um, now, sort of the 2006 text, there's this great variety of themes. And toward the end, the tone, at least from a reader's perspective, really changes, um, right? The, the, the political concerns run through um, every page of the volume. And in fact, he says at one point, you know, everything is ultimately political, right? If, if you're mm-hmm. honest, if you're a human being, the posts seem to get more explicit Um about offering responses to sort of current political events. And moving then into the 2007 texts, this is actually a very different section. And you you mentioned in the introduction that there are, um, he was uh, photographing a lot and posting images a lot during this time. Mm -hmm. And so the nature of um, the selection here changed. Can you talk a little bit about what was happening for Ai Weiwei in 2007 and how that impacted the nature of the blog and um, how you as an editor dealt with images um, in this context and how to decide what to include and what not to include? Hmm. Yeah, well, the, the 2007 year for him was a big year because he was working on the fairy tale project, which was a project for Documenta, the Documenta exhibition in Kassel, Germany. And his project was to take 1,001 Chinese citizens and bring them over to this town in which they could do whatever they wanted. It was completely, you had ultimate freedom. All you did was go go there. And these 1,001 people were mirrored 
um, by 1001 sort of Ming Qing dynasty antique chairs that were placed around the exhibition center or the town and the exhibition halls. So he was, I mean, as you can imagine, that was an, a product of incredible like time commitment for him. So as he explained to me, he didn't really have the time to do a lot of writing or to focus on his writing itself. And he makes up for that in pictures. Um, you know, his camera goes everywhere with him, especially at that time. He would take hundreds of pictures a day sometimes. And then he would choose small series and put them on the blog. So just a series of black and white images. Mm-hmm. And when, when I was going through the pictures at the end, the pictures are always a little bit of an afterthought. And we didn't focus too much on images in this book because there was too many. And to make it into an image-based book would be something very different. And we really wanted to focus on texts here and sort of his ideology, bringing that out. So that's why we we left the pictures to a minimum. I think there's 26 or 27 in there. Mm -hmm. And at the end, there was about five days of time when I went into the office every morning and turned on the computer and just flipped through days and days, months, weeks, you know, of time looking at image after image after image, just, you know, sometimes less than a second per image just to get through the incredible bulk of images that were there. So it was really, really hard to narrow down to these few. Um, I think I tried to reflect his photographic habits. Um, so in not all stent- circumstances are they narrative. On page 121, there's an image of a craftsman mm-hmm. who's painting on the on the backside of one of the chairs that went to the fairy tale project. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of images relating to his work at that time. On 126 and 127, you see the before and after of the template work that he did, where he took he took hundreds of antique temple doors and wooden doors mm-hmm. and piece them into this almost like a almost a pinwheel shaped structure that ultimately collapsed in the winds mm-hmm. so it was a before and after images of the collapse and those two images that you see reflect hundreds of images below them mm-hmm. so it was difficult to choose those and then, of, of course, um, some of my favorite images in the book are the haircut. <laughs> mm, yeah, the haircut's really good. <laughs> now, the haircut's really good. <laughs> I love that. We're, the book is worth the that alone. <laughs> I love those images. Um, now, moving from this, the um, in two thousand eight, um, as you alluded to before, this is a big year um, for um, China. You know, for contemporary Chinese history, this is a big year for Ai Weiwei, and this is a really big year for the blog. Um, in particular, mm-hmm. you see a lot of posts in the section on the May uh, Wenchen earthquake. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that as it um, is refracted through the blog and your work um, translating and editing this? Well, the the Wenchen earthquake was um, happened in May of two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. And it was a very high magnitude earthquake that 
claimed a lot of lives. I think I think ultimately it was seventy thousand some people perished, and among those there was six thousand students, young students who had perished in buildings that were of substandard quality. So they crumbled in the quake, mm-hmm. and this this incident or, and the fact that the schools were substandard was sort of latched on to by Iwewe in his writings. And it became an important theme in his blogging to talk about um, such issues as government responsibility at all levels. In this case, you know, of the Sichuan local government, um, you know, provincial city, county governments, their responsibility to their citizens. Um, also to talk about transparency of local organs in making numbers, correct numbers available to the public and to the media and to interested parties. Mm-hmm. So these, these issues became very important in his, in his blogging. And I think were you know, very humanitarian of him. They, they also, in my opinion, became the first major turn when the blog itself became a tool of activism. So this was the first time when he was organizing teams of volunteers through the blog to come to his office to spend their time calling Sichuan government um, uh, or traveling down to the quake areas to interview families, um, pastor local governments for information. So this is when the blog took on a little bit of a different character. It wasn't just a mouthpiece for his ideas, but it was a sort of a meeting place for, I don't want to say disgruntled, but for people who felt moved enough that they wanted to participate and sort of join in a cause. Mm-hmm. And was there, um, because I didn't have a chance to actually look at the blog when it was up, was there any kind of place for people to write comments on his blog? Yes, there was. And as, yeah. a, as an editor, did you um, did you consider working those in the comments? Yeah, I did in the beginning, but um, it's just there was hundreds of comments yeah, sometimes, so it's just it's pretty much impossible to to translate all of those. And also because then the discussion is a completely different level. Mm-hmm. So that's right, and sort of. Taking um, a minute um, to to think a little bit about this really, um, and it comes through really well in the book. This transformation of the blog from something that you know he used to to record and um, communicate his thoughts to something that actually was a tool for mobilizing people and for connecting people, and that you know the importance of connection and connectivity um, to the way the internet is actually reshaping um, humans' experience of their world and their cities and their space and um, each other really is something that runs through this whole book. Um, mm-hmm. This also kind of um, translates into the uh, texts that are selected for the 2009 section. And 2009 is when the blog was actually shut down. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you've talked a little bit about the grass mud horse, but um, what's really interesting about this section of the book is that um, you included not just blogs, but also a different format. So there's a section um, on uh, tweets, or there's a section mm-hmm. on tweets where he, um, I, I believe it's, he used Twitter as a platform for responding to the 2009 Xinjiang protests. Is that 
Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that also is um, just really interesting to think about that as a of another kind of vehicle um, that seems to represent an evolution of the way he's using this technology. Yeah, it, it, you're, you're right. It definitely does. Um, I think by 2009, he was very fluent and already in the blog language and was already tweeting at that time and had experimented with a couple other, like I said, a couple other platforms where the, the Chinese language would be available, which were all shut down immediately behind the firewall. Mm-hmm. And Twitter... Twitter poses a completely different uh, challenge and opens up tons of new possibilities for for him. And I mean, that's what we were trying to show with the Xinjiang discussion because he he sort of tweeting in real time and discussing events that are happening as they happen. And the people who would follow him, I think were the kind of grassroots reporters or people who are interested in all sort of all sorts of information that they know they're not going to get from any any um, so-called um, what sort of like sacrosanct channels mm-hmm. within uh, within the mainland media system here. So, and there's definitely an online community of people who you know you know if, if anything. I don't want to sound cheesy saying this, but if there's any sort of injustice in the world going on, you know you can find it on on certain people's Twitter feeds mm-hmm. here, his being one of them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the that's the main difference that that blogging also um, doesn't doesn't allow for such freedom and versatility. And I think one thing that I made clear, I hope in the book is that, Tweeting in Chinese is a, a little bit different than tweeting in English because there's so much more you can say with less words. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because the characters, uh, he even has a quote in there, I think, where he says 140 characters is a novel. And he also says at one point that um, none of Mao's quotations are more than 140 words. That's right. <laughs> so it's pretty telling. That's right. Um now I don't, I don't want to keep you for too much longer. So um, I want to sort of bring us to uh, maybe the close of our discussion um, by just asking you a couple questions about really um, the future of this, of mm-hmm. your own work, of this project. Um, so, well, actually, first, is there any single um, post or part of this book that really excites you that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you'd like to? just mention for listeners who um, who might not have had the chance to look at the book yet? I think in 2009, there's a lot of really good stuff here. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of stuff that lets us know about his, his bravery as an activist and as a person, you know, the strength of his character, I think is reflected in, in the 2009 text. Mm-hmm. For example... Um, Well, for example, a very funny, a very funny um, one is the bullshit tax on <laughs> February first. That's that's a good one. And do another. You, do you want to maybe oh, say say a couple words about that? That was one of my favorite uh, posts in the entire book, actually. Yeah, that's a really good one. He he p- proposes all these fees 
you know, in response in response to an official fee where each each car on the road has to pay three hundred RMB, which will you know gross the government something like one point three billion RMB per year. He proposes a few other taxes that could be applied to those less desirable people <laughs> up up in the government, such as. Um, the eight honors and eight disgraces fee, which is a play on a, a piece of propaganda that we hear here all the time. And this is one of my favorites, the entering the capital to present gifts fee. <laughs> and he says, as a result of local government's holiday custom of catering to central government officials and various Beijing institutions by hosting feasts and presenting gifts, shopping centers in the capital have been inundated with inordinate amounts of expensive luxury merchandise. Despite repeated bans, this corruption cannot be stopped. I think it's so funny. And he says, a fee should be collected from the automobiles of provincial government officials entering the capital during the holiday season to present tribute gifts. <laughs> and it's so true. It's so true here. I mean, the Prada stores, the Gucci, Chanel. I mean, who's buying those things? You know, I think any any store attendant in there will tell you, that a lot of their clients come over the phone. I think there was even an article in the Times about it in the New York Times. These people just call up and just, you know, they're just asking me something like 30, 300,000 in bags for gifts for so-and-so. It's ridiculous. There is also a menopause fee, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the polluted, the polluted spa water fee, I think, is really good. <laughs> Well, if this doesn't um, convince readers to pick this book up, I don't know what will. <laughs> um, so, is there now that you've um, sort of, I think, produced this really what I imagine is going to be a really successful book, and certainly a completely fascinating book. Is there um, another particular, uh, any particular contemporary Chinese artist right now who's especially exciting you or inspiring you that um, listeners might not know to check out, but might um, check out after listening to this interview? An artist, I, I can't. I can't say about artists. If you mean in terms of translation, my mind is thinking translation okay. now. Um, maybe is there a particular um, figure's work or uh, blogs or posts that you think is especially worthy of translation or might produce an especially interesting document? I think, I think there's many. I think there's definitely a lot. There's almost, there's almost too many. Um, Personally, I'm interested in doing a little more translation in the uh, the area of art criticism and art theory, but from the Chinese end, obviously. I think people, I think people very often say there's no art criticism in China, or that there's sort of a lack of critical thinking. But I think there's maybe different ways of expressing that. So there's a few authors I would like to bring into into English. So for example- for readers. For example, who might um, some of those authors be? Well, one is Li Xianting, who has been around since the 80s, mm-hmm. an active critic and an interesting thinker. And also, um, he's one of those writers who I think writes in a very Chinese Chinese. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> uh, a lot of people read translated texts, you know, in the 80s when a big wave of translation happened. Many 
many intellectuals were reading tr- text and translation. So the way of writing and the mode of thinking and language was very influenced by Western thought patterns, but that is not necessarily a Chinese way of thinking. So I guess just to put it, you know, to put it bluntly, the way of structuring an argument in Chinese is different. So it interests me to approach some of these authors and put out a book of texts that would explore a more native approach to art history. Wu Hong did a big book, Contemporary Chinese Art, Primary Documents for the MoMA, mm-hmm. which I did some translations on as well. So, But I'd like to do a, a smaller and more concentrated volume of those. But I'm really not sure, I have to say. So it's, it's hard to say. My next question was going to be sort of what's, what's on the horizon for you? What's next for you? Is that project... Um, sort of creating a smaller version or a, a kind of more concentrated volume of translations, what you plan to do next, or is there another project you're excited about right now? Well, that's my, that is on my distant horizon. And actually the next project will be a English to Chinese project, an English to Chinese translation project, which I'll be doing editorial work on, but I won't be doing the main translations, obviously. Um, We're going to do a two-volume anthology of critical texts from Art Forum from its 50-year history into Chinese. So that will be a very interesting experiment. Wow. Yeah. Maybe that's... Excited about that. That'll be our next interview with you. (laughs) Maybe. That's a great project. Yeah. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I just want to thank you so much, especially given the time difference, for taking the time to share your thoughts on this really amazing work with us. It's uh, it's not only a fascinating and inspiring read, um, and I learned personally a lot from it, but I think it's also um, a really incredibly rich resource that I hope many um, Chinese history and Chinese studies colleagues will be looking at when they're planning courses on modern China and looking for really interesting primary sources um, on contemporary China. So that would be amazing. That would be so great. And I think that would make a lot of people happy myself. And I think it would make Wei Wei very happy as well. Mm. So thank you so much and best of luck um, with your next project. And I hope we'll hear a lot more from you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. It was nice talking to you. You too. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm Carla Nappi, and uh, thanks for listening. See you next time.